This is Beekeeper Confidential. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. We've hit a big milestone since the last episode aired. We have reached our 5,000th download. episodes have featured beekeepers from New York and Rhode Island. Our tour of the northeastern United States continues today and I talk with a beekeeper from Massachusetts who raises queens, teaches beekeeping, and uses their passion for bees to develop tools for facilitating community outreach and collaboration and is also writing a book. I'm in awe of the impact that our guest has had and will continue to make on the beekeeping community at large. Please welcome Angela Roll. Angela? It is. Hey, this is Mandy. Hey, Mandy. Angela, I'm so excited to talk to you because you were like a superhero. I'm a superhero. That's so <laughs> amazing to hear. <laughs> uh, were you born with these powers? The superpowers? Yeah, I mean. Um, I think I inherited them. <laughs> I come from a, a long line of dream walking, future predicting women. So, so perhaps. <laughs> well, I just, that I'm so blown power. away by the amount of work that you're doing with community engagement and teaching beekeeping and, you know, you're writing a book, the queen rearing. Take me to the beginning. How did this all start? Ooh! Um, <laughs> so it really, it started for me in, um, I lived in Miami and I was engaging with, had friends who were living on this little farm um, called Ursinus, which is in the little Haiti neighborhood, and now has a different name, which I cannot remember. And they had bees, and I used to just watch them, and I was super fascinated by them. And at that point in my life, I was really interested in traveling. I had I'd made this pact with my grandmother before she passed away that after college, like, I had to go to college, and then after college, I had to spend at least a year, like, traveling and not go right into the workforce. These are, like, high priorities. Wow. <laughs> so I'm, like, right at, no pressure. Uh, and so I'm right <laughs> at that, like, that moment where I've saved up enough money and I'm, like, ready to burst forth. But I, I started this relationship with these honeybees that just, like, captivated and held me. And I always sort of knew that I would return to it. And then I moved to Boston to go to graduate school maybe four years later. And in between there, I... Got to do all of this incredible stuff, like sail a boat across the Pacific and teach in Korea um, <gasps> and do some housing 
What were you teaching in Korea? uh, I taught English there uh, for about a year and a half. Oh, very Um, cool. Yeah, and it worked worked in partnership with the Korean government. Um, They hired a bunch of us to come over there. It's a really interesting experience. Um, Yeah, so, so, uh, you know, fast forward, I am... I'm to Boston to go to grad school, and I decide that I'm going to uh, spend the winter reading Sue Hubble's book, so A Year with Bees. Mm. Um, and then in that winter, I just so happened to attend a potluck, and there's this French beekeeper named Jean-Claude Barut, oh. and he and I become fast friends, and he's... Um, you know, he follows the sort of the, the brother Adam Kirk Webster practices of beekeeping. And so we did a lot of work together in a small, like, 25 apiary in the South Boston area called the Boston Nature Center. And we started in collaboration with a woman named Stephanie Elson and Sadie Brown. We started the Tour de Hive, which was a bicycle-powered apiary tour that went through Boston and Cambridge. Uh, and we started the Boston Area Beekeeping Association. And it just was this perfect synergy of, like, lots of energy. And we were all, Jean-Claude was our mentor, but there were four or five of us who were, you know, in our mid and late 20s and just, like, ready to rock this oh thing. Gosh. So it really came together and was so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and it was all really serendipitous. And I think that that's really indicative to me of things that I should be doing mm-hmm. when... So, you know, when the cards just sort of fall in place in certain ways that give you energy and keep you moving. As a child, did you ever think about bees very much? Did you have any idea that that would become your future? No, not at all. I grew up in an apartment in Queens. (laughs) (laughs) And there was this, like, one little spot. I play with ants. It was, like, really big. We call them army ants, but I think they're actually carpenter ants. Yeah, I would play with nerve ants in that space and see all the things they did and try to take their mess apart. And so I definitely had this little scientist vibe, uh-huh. but but no, it was the, it's the furthest thing you can possibly <laughs> imagine from. What did you go to school for? So I went, uh, I did my undergrad in humanities with a f- focus on like art history and ecology. And then I did my graduate degree in teaching and evaluation at Boston University. And now you're teaching mm-hmm. beekeeping courses with them? Yeah, so now I teach I teach beekeeping courses at the University of Massachusetts. Um, I teach two classes. One is online and one is in person. Um, and I've been teaching with them for the last couple of years. Uh, so that's one facet of my teaching. And then I, act, I, I work with NOFA Mass, which is the Northeast organic farming association i do a bee school with them every spring mm-hmm. and then i do a couple of community things here on the farm like we are we are bubbling the cauldron of potentially hosting a queer and trans beekeeping school here on the farm this summer the school will be held on angela's farm in montague in the summer of 2019 The actual dates are to be determined, but if you want to sign up, I'll be including a link to the interest form in the notes from today's show on my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. Yeah, you know, beekeeping is, we lack diversity in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah. Being able to, like, hold space to increase opportunity for people to learn in a space that feels like it is is made for them feels really important to me. Mm -hmm. Now, historically... 
in Boston, is there a large beekeeping community? Like, has that yeah, really gained traction question. since you arrived on the scene? Um, so before, I think before I, I, I was there, there when, when I arrived, there was no Suffolk County Beekeeping Association, which is where Boston is. It's situated in Suffolk County. So when we got there, there wasn't. But there's a lot of other bee clubs in Massachusetts. Like Worcester County is one of the oldest bee clubs. Um, in the country, allegedly, oh. and this area where where I live now, which is about two hours west of Boston, this area has a very old beekeeping club and is one of the places where Lorenzo Langstroth wrote his book. He was a pastor oh. in the church here in Greenfield. Yeah, and then historically, this area as well is supposed to be part of this like New York, Massachusetts, Vermont region where people raised Northeast Queens and sold them all over the country, um, and it was a bigger epicenter of queen rearing than um, anywhere else until, you know, that sort of shifted to the sun belt. So, mm-hmm. lots of bee history, but the revival didn't really start happening until after 2007, 2008, I would say. Let's talk about queen rearing. When did you start learning how to do that? I started, I started, I started experimenting with it, I'd say, in like my third year of beekeeping, um, there was a, like, Northeast Treatment-Free Beekeeping Conference. Mm-hmm. I do not remember what year that was, but there was only one. It was organized by the folks from Golden Rule Honey, and in that, I remember, we did, I did some of my first graft, and that was, that was the first time I sort of experimented with grafting, and then I did a lot of research and watched a few people demonstrate the Miller method, which is where you cut the, either cut the foundation or the wax into this uh, triangular shape to get the to so so you you take a, a, an empty frame put it into a hive have a queen lay a bunch of eggs in it and then cut it into this triangular shape and put it into a cell raiser and they'll take all of those that's queenless and they'll take all of those like edges and raise them into queen cells and then you can just cut each individual one out and transfer it to a nucleus colony so it's like a grass-free queen rearing method yeah and how many queen um, cells do you usually get with that on each frame the Miller method was small, like, that's smaller scale, which is why I did it, because I didn't have, you know, I was, at the time, urban beekeeping, several small apiaries, biking my equipment between places. <laughs> biking it? So, did you have a little bike trailer? I did have a bike trailer for a while. It was kind of a disaster. I never really could get everything tied down in a way that I didn't end up with equipment spilled out all over the street. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can imagine people, you know, driving by, seeing this person on a bike with, you know, a, a giant pile of bees stuff on the back. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you ever transport bees that way? Um, I, I think I've transported swarms on a bike trailer, but never, like, a full hive. <laughs> that seems brave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Something about riding a bike and doing that seems more terrifying than, like, moving bees in a car, you know? Yeah. What is the most terrifying thing about beekeeping for you? Oh, I don't know. You seem really brave. Because I see pictures um, of you sometimes where you're, like, in shorts and t-shirt, and you're, like, totally comfortable without all the beekeeping gear. Yeah, I mean... I have a chronic um, illness, and so, so and so it's basically an autoimmune disease, right? And uh-huh. what I found over time, I used to be really scared of getting stung, and it was more the anxiety than the actual sting. But 
what I found over time was actually that like all the joint swelling and issues that I have with having a chronic illness really go fade away when I get stung a few times a week. Wow. Um, so I've sort of just been to this disease of medicine place where I'm like, okay, well, there are things that I need from my bees and the things that bees need from me. And so accepting the stings has definitely become a part of my practice and mm-hmm. really helps with my joint pain. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like terrified for maybe the first three years and just held it together really well because I didn't want to appear. I feel I don't like know. I didn't want to yeah. not I wouldn't want to appear afraid in front of my peers. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of where I'm at and because I'm just I'm coming to the very end of my third year and I still yeah. get really kind of jumpy even though I love mm-hmm. being with the bees and I love having the hive open and like looking at everything in there I can get really jumpy sometimes and I yeah. want to get to that place yeah. where I'm not so scared. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think what like the 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 act of queen rearing and doing that small scale queen rearing was really what shifted it for me because mm. when you're doing a lot of that work and then also grafting, you can't be wearing a veil when you graft. And so the more I got into queen rearing, A, I think the more I understood about different age bees, because you're doing a lot of sort of counting and mathematics about your brood cycle, um, and different bee behaviors than I understood in those first couple of years, Um, and I became less afraid, and like, I still don't love getting stung like 10 or 15 times, like that stinks, (laughs) 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 but I like, I I think that I, you know, understanding the the math of like how old different bees are and what I can and can't do within a hive before I'm like risking that really high level of agitation Mm -hmm. um, has helped a lot with like abating the fear of being stung. I'm still like pretty not cool with being stung in the face. It doesn't feel good. (laughs) It doesn't look good. (laughs) Does it happen very often? Doesn't happen very often, but man, they get you. I've yet to get a a facial sting. I came really close recently. I felt the bee ricochet off of my face, but she didn't get purchased. So, (laughs) the one thing I do appreciate is that a lot of times with face stings, not all the time, but most of the time, they'll usually bounce off your face before they sting you. So you get a little bit of time to be like, oh, I need to cover my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) So that was like a warning bump. Yep. You only get one. (laughs) (laughs) One and run. (laughs) Or you're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's a new bumper sticker for beekeepers. It really is. Is there a large treatment-free beekeeping community where you're at? Mm, interesting question. Um, so first I want to clarify, I raise my queens and my nukes treatment-free, but I do treat my honey-producing colonies with hmm. um, OAV, so mm-hmm. oxalic acid vapor. Yeah. Um, and I do that because I'm not doing any systemic brood breaking of those hives, so they'll produce honey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they get laden with Varroa. Um, and I think that for me personally, after, you know, really – ingesting Samuel Ramsey's research and some of the work that Jay Evans has done, I'm, I'm feeling like 
it's not responsible for me to create a hive that's like laden with varroa for my beekeeper community. Um, So I manage my queen producing colony Mm -hmm. um, all with out using treatment and a lot of that is like because I can do so many brood breaks um, it really keeps the mite levels down I'm constantly monitoring those with alcohol washes um, and drops Um, but yeah there's there's a lot of conflict about treatment free beekeeping here right there's some treatment free beekeepers there are there's obviously Kirk Webster who I've studied with up in Vermont who's pretty monk-esque <laughs> he's oh. very quiet and keeps himself and like is open and ed- and incredibly down to educate the community but also isn't like a community building sort of model um and then there's a couple of folks in eastern mass there's a few folks in new york state that are treatment for beekeepers and we all talk to each other and communicate and trade resources and yeah. talk about ways that we can collaborate. But there's a lot of conflict about treatment free and there's a lot of conflict about, you know, even what the words treatment free mean, I really struggle with. Um, yeah. Especially now with sort of like the preservation beekeeping movement and I'm like, I feel very tentative about how we're defining these terms and what, it doesn't feel like we're all on the same page, you know? Right. No, I agree. And I think that that's, it's unfortunate that there is conflict between groups that are, that have their personal philosophies. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, ultimately we all want what's best for the bees. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe that is true of, you know, I tell my students because we take a really big look at the pollination models in the United States. And I'm like, I will bet you that there are a lot of people who running, you know, there are a lot of huge commercial beekeepers who love their bees. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about industrial agriculture, but we're also talking about people who are deeply committed to this insect. And I think that that's like one thing that ties all beekeepers together is that like deep love for this creature, right? I mean, yes. a lot of this is impossibly hard. <laughs> yeah. And it really takes that like passion to, to keep us all us all going. But yeah, yeah. treatment phase is challenging for me because you know, I teach my classes and my new beekeepers about different treatment methods and different, like, non-chemical treat management methods, and I encourage them to try a bunch of different things because, mm-hmm. A, I don't want them to think that treatment-free means they just get their bees and put them in their box and then they get their honey from them because we don't, like, we don't, that kind of beekeeping doesn't exist in the United States anymore, yep. you know? Like, that's not real post-Varroa. There's a lot of management that you have to do if you want to keep your bees alive regardless of what your practices are going to be so yeah and the hardest thing is hearing people say my colony was just booming all summer long and then all of a sudden they're dead yeah yeah it's really tough yeah tom seeley was here recently and he said that if he wants to get honey from any of his colonies he has to treat them Mm -hmm. because yeah they're brood chambers are are so large and they don't get the brood break but in the smaller colonies Mm -hmm. that he keeps that he's not keeping for honey they they have higher survivability rates yeah yeah absolutely i my dream is even to transition from the langstroth in Ware because i just love Mm. i love smaller taller colonies it's just a thing that i like but i'm kind of trapped in this i have a ton of of langstroth equipment 
<laughs> yeah, I I have mostly Langstroth, but I, I did get a Wari this year, and I love the size of it, but it's a little bit trickier to do anything with, because they just have mm. fused their comb to all the walls, and... Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. tell me about this book that you're writing. Cool. Thanks for asking. Yeah. yeah. So, I am working on a book, um, so the University of Massachusetts Library has, um, a big open source department. And what that means is they're trying to think about educational resources that can get published at an academic level that are free to use for students of universities, right? Mm -hmm. So if I teach a class about beekeeping and I require two books, in theory, one of the books would be an open source book that could just be a PDF downloaded to my computer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so last year I wrote a proposal to them pitching this book that has three parts. And the first part of it is resources and tools for new beekeepers. And because I have this sort of perspective that we should be queen rearing at a small scale, you know, as soon as we feel comfortable enough with our bees, I have tools like um, queen assessment tools, I have hive tracking tools, um, I have mite counting tools, like sort of a breakdown of all the things you need and the way you can either get them cheap or make them yourself. Mm -hmm. um, And then just like effective sheets we've decided are like good assessment sheets from my students looking at them and testing them out and trying a few different ones. Then the second part of the book is a series of interviews with beekeepers from all over the U.S. and Canada. This section of the book is trying to get at that, like, an examination of the human-honeybee relationship, you know, sort of a decade after CCD and this, like, big, quote-unquote, save the bees movement. Mm. Um, And, like, where are we? How has it shifted the relationship between bees and humans? And what are people doing? And I'm really working to center female voice, queer voice, and voices of people of POC folks and people who may be marginalized in beekeeping. So cultivated a big group of folks. My students have interviewed many of them and brought those interviews back to me. And then I'll be putting together a section of that book, that part of the book this summer. And then the final piece is sort of like a... I don't know how to label it anything but a manifesto, even though it doesn't totally feel like that to me. <laughs> but it's it's a reflective writing exercise that I started undertaking about a year ago about the human-honeybee relationship and looking at what it's been historically, what it is now, and, and just a criticism of the direction we've gone in the United States um, with industrial agriculture and beekeeping and Mm -hmm. how we got there and how bees were used as a tool of colonization and what I think detangling that relationship could look like for us. So it's sort of a theory writing and then the end of it is a reflective practice that I've been teaching and using with organizations and individuals who want to sort of use biomimicry um, as a way of reflecting on their personal work or their professional work. So it's reflecting exercises based on things that you can learn from a honeybee hive um, and from building relationship with, you know, any kind of organism. But because I'm coming from a beekeeping perspective, my story is more honed in on reflective energy reciprocity with an an insect. (laughs) Wow. Will this be available to anybody or just people who are at the university? So the PDF um, that will get... Through the university 
will be available to university students for free download. And I think there's like a 2 to $5 charge if other folks want to download it from the university's website. But then I do intend to print bound copies, and I'll have several artists who are going to do illustrations for me or have done photography for me that will, will also be a part of that uh, bound copy of the text. And that should be out by late 20. 19. Well, I can't wait to read it, and we'll have to follow up with you when it is available so our listeners can know where to get it, and that's yeah, super exciting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have these reflective packets that I'm calling zines, which are really beautiful illustrations with a little bit of facts about bees, and then the, the other side of these is this honeycomb structure of reflecting on different questions about relationship and personal practice. So I'm selling those through my Instagram, which is at YardbirdBees, and that's sort of helping move me along in my writing process. So if folks want to, like, get the pre-release version Ooh, yeah. <laughs> of that tool, it's available now. You can follow the progress of Angela's work on their book, Radicalize the Hive, by signing up for Angela's mailing list at AngelaRoll.com. For folks in the Northeast, I am taking nucleus colony orders through my website, which is AngelaRoll.com, and they'll be up in the Northeast in May. And folks in the Southeast, I'm working with uh, Taka Seville from Tuckabee, and there's a potential if folks want a treatment-free nuke that we could get those to the Southeast so they can reach out to me and we can chat that. Very cool, yeah. If you want to get in on Angela's Russian survivor stock and New World Carnolians, be sure to visit their website at angelaroll.com and make your reservations soon because these nucleus colonies will sell out. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, it was awesome to talk with you. Thank you for asking. Yeah. If you want to learn more about Angela, visit my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. I'll be including links to their website, photos of Angela and their bees, and more. You can also follow Beekeeper Confidential on Facebook and Instagram. By liking, subscribing, and sharing, you're helping to grow our audience. If you want to take your support to the next level, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. Your patron dollars help me run this podcast and also supports my work with the bees. Until next time, May the buzz be with you. Confidential is a Waggle Works production. Each episode is written, edited, and produced by Mandy Shaw.